You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for downloading episode 26 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Jefferson Davis's inauguration as the provisional president of the Confederate States of America was set for Monday, February 18, 1861, in Montgomery, Alabama. In his inaugural address, Davis declared that the new Southern Republic, quote, illustrates the American idea that governments rest upon the consent of the governed and that it is the right of the people to alter or abolish governments whenever they become destructive of the ends for which they were established, end quote. Davis continued along in that same vein, alluding to the resolution and devotion of America's founding fathers when he proclaimed, quote, doubly justified by the absence of wrong on our part and by wanton aggression on the parts of others, there can be no cause to doubt that the courage and patriotism of the people of the Confederate States will be found equal to any measures of defense which honor and security may require, End quote. And in Jefferson Davis, the people of the Confederate States in February 1861 were convinced they had the man who would safely lead their new nation through the perilous days ahead. William Louds Yancey, in famously introducing Davis with the statement, The man and the hour have met, went on in that introduction to point out that Jefferson Davis was not only a statesman and a patriot, but also a soldier. So a statesman, a patriot, a soldier. Southerners knew that in Jefferson Davis they had a president of proven ability and great dedication a man they believed who was ideally suited to tackle the difficult task at hand, a man who was equal to any measures of defense which honor and security might require of the new Confederacy. In early 1861, while the Confederate states expressed unbounded confidence in Jefferson Davis, many in the North were impressed with him as well, especially when they compared the resume of the Confederacy's capable new president with the record of President-elect Abraham Lincoln. Jefferson Davis was a graduate of West Point, a hero of the Mexican War, one of the United States' most highly acclaimed secretaries of war, and lately a prominent and influential United States senator. Before 1860, Abraham Lincoln hadn't won an election for 14 years, and his entire record in national office consisted of a single term in the House of Representatives. As a young man, he had served a short while in his state's local militia when, by his own admission, the fiercest foes he faced were bloodthirsty mosquitoes. 
So compared to the Confederate States' new president, Abraham Lincoln appeared to be seriously deficient in physical appearance, education, intellect, martial expertise, and administrative experience. On February 18, 1861, the Philadelphia, Pennsylvanian newspaper declared, quote, The President of the Southern Confederation is a gentleman, a scholar, a soldier, a statesman. The President-elect of the United States is neither a scholar, a soldier, nor a statesman. Without the polished elegance of the well-bred man, he has all the rough manners and coarse sayings of the clown. End quote. Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln had both been born in Kentucky, barely a hundred miles and eight months apart. But they were two very dissimilar men, and in the heady, tension-filled days of early 1861, in comparing the two presidents and the difficult tasks that lay before them, then based on training and experience, it appeared to all the world as if the South had got the better end of the bargain. Jefferson Davis was born on June 3, 1808, in southwestern Kentucky, not far from the Tennessee line. Jefferson was the youngest of ten children born to Samuel Davis and Jane Cook. In Kentucky, Samuel Davis was a tobacco farmer and horse breeder. Samuel hailed from Georgia, where he had served during the Revolutionary War, first with mounted troops and then as a captain of infantry. The elder Davis was apparently something of a restless spirit, moving from Georgia to Kentucky, and then when Jefferson was two years old, Samuel moved his family to Louisiana. But Louisiana didn't suit him, and around 1810, the Davises moved for the last time to Mississippi. Samuel settled down to grow cotton on a small plantation near Woodville in what became Wilkinson County. Samuel Davis called the place Poplar Grove, and 75 years later, Jefferson Davis would say, quote, and there my memories begin, end quote. In rural and rustic Mississippi, Jefferson Davis attended the usual log cabin schoolhouse for a year. But then in 1816, when Jefferson was eight years old, Samuel Davis sent his youngest child off to Kentucky to the College of St. Thomas, a Catholic boarding school run by Dominicans, which seems a curious decision for a man who was an indifferent Baptist. But Samuel Davis was a man who attached great importance to education. Little Jeff's escort to Kentucky was Major Thomas Hines, who had served under Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans in the War of 1812. On their way northward to the Bluegrass State, Hines and his young charge made a stopover in Tennessee and spent several weeks as guests at the Hermitage, Andrew Jackson's estate near Nashville. Not surprisingly, the formidable Jackson made quite an impression on young Jefferson, and Davis's layover at the Hermitage was a memory he always treasured. Jefferson Davis arrived at St. Thomas's, about 40 miles southwest of Lexington, in July 1816. He was not only the sole Protestant, but also the smallest boy at the Catholic school. But nevertheless, Davis seemed content enough there, and did quite well in his studies, in fact, his quick grasp of Latin and Greek astonished the priests who taught at St. Thomas's. And perhaps because he wasn't actually Catholic, Davis suffered relatively little of the notoriously severe Catholic school discipline. He later said, quote, For whatever reason, the priests were particularly kind to me. End quote. 
But sending their youngest child off to school in far-off Kentucky had apparently been Samuel Davis's idea, because after little Jeff had spent two years at St. Thomas's, Jane Davis, in the summer of 1818, insisted that her son return home to Mississippi to continue his schooling, and Samuel yielded to his wife's wishes. A wise man. So anyway, for the next several years, the young scholar lived at home and pursued his studies at the newly organized Wilkinson County Academy, where the headmaster was a fellow from Boston named John Shaw. Davis said of Shaw, quote, He was a quiet, just man, and I am sure he taught me more in the time I was with him than I ever learned from anyone else, end quote. By the time he was 16, Jefferson was outgrowing the local academy, and so it was decided he should return to Kentucky to continue his education. This time, though, he would attend the most prestigious school west of the Alleghenies, Transylvania University in Lexington. During the time he attended Transylvania, Jefferson not only profited academically, impressing his peers and his professors with his studiousness, but he also benefited socially, for there in the heart of the bluegrass he met the cream of Kentucky society. While he was at Transylvania, besides acquiring the foundation of a fine classical education, Jefferson Davis also formed acquaintances and adopted attitudes that were to stay with him his entire life. But then in the summer of 1824, a little over a year after returning to Kentucky to attend Transylvania, 16-year-old Jefferson Davis learned that his father had died back in Mississippi. The elder Davis, a moderately successful farmer with a handful of slaves, had suffered a severe financial setback shortly before this, the stress of which had apparently taken a toll on his health. After Samuel's death, the 39-year-old Joseph Davis, Jefferson's oldest brother, became like a father to the teenager. Joseph was already a successful lawyer and was well on his way to becoming a wealthy planner with numerous slaves working a vast tract of land known as Davis Bend, located on the Mississippi River, south of Vicksburg. At about the same time he received the news of his father's death, Jefferson Davis also received a letter asking whether he intended to take up his appointment to the United States Military Academy at West Point. You see, even before their father's financial difficulties, older brother Joseph had used his growing political connections to secure Jefferson a place at West Point. And now a decision was called for. Would Davis stay at Transylvania or leave for West Point? He made a quick decision, although it doesn't seem to have been an easy one, since he actually wanted to stay in Lexington to finish university and then perhaps pursue a legal career like Joseph. But his father's death and the expense of staying on at Transylvania perhaps played a role in his decision to become a cadet at West Point. After all, at the military academy, the government, not his family, would bear the expense of his continued education. In his book, Jefferson Davis and His Generals, Stephen Woodworth says, quote, Though apparently satisfied enough at West Point to remain there the entire four years, graduating in 1828, Davis was anything but a model cadet. He managed to keep his slate clean for one month, but after that, it was mostly downhill. By the end of his first year at West Point, Davis was rated as one of the 15 worst-behaved cadets in the Academy's 250 cadet enrollment at that time. He capped it off that summer by managing to get himself court-martialed for being caught, visibly intoxicated, it might be added, 
Inside Benny Haven's Cavern, a notorious local dive that was strictly off-limits to cadets. The court did not believe his rather lame excuse that he entered the establishment to get out of the rain. Davis was sentenced to be dismissed from the academy, but was granted clemency and allowed to stay. Not that his behavior thereafter was unobjectionable. Cadet Davis racked up demerits at an appalling rate for an assortment of offenses that included skipping class, skipping chapel, leaving dirty clothes strewn around his room, wearing his hair too long, attending a rather spirited Christmas Eve eggnog party that degenerated into a riot after he left, that one got him arrested and confined to quarters again, spitting on the floor, making noise during study hours, and firing his musket out the window of his room, end quote. And you might think that Davis would have avoided Benny Havens after his court-martial, but he didn't. One night during another visit to the tavern, Davis had to flee the place to avoid being caught there by an instructor, and in the dark, hurrying along a shortcut back to the academy, and perhaps a bit tipsy, he tumbled over a rocky cliff alongside the Hudson River and almost killed himself. So, in considering all of that, this fun-loving, disorderly young man certainly seems a far cry from the picture most people have in their minds of Jefferson Davis, that of the cold, aloof, upstanding man who was the president of the Confederacy. But then, to be fair, I'm sure we all did things in college that we look back on now and cringe. Well, except for Tracy, who was a paragon of virtue during her time at the University of Arkansas. Right. <clears throat> so anyway, in 1828, Jefferson Davis eventually graduated from West Point, 23rd in a class of 32. Woodworth points out, quote, Yet despite his thoroughly undistinguished career as a cadet, Davis was still deeply influenced by West Point. The Academy left its mark on him in his ramrod straight posture, his increased reserve and formality, and his respect for military professionalism, attributes that lasted through the rest of his life. End quote. Davis also formed relationships at the Academy that would prove significant later on. Robert E. Lee and Joseph E. Johnston were there at the same time as Davis, but he wasn't close to either of those future Confederate generals. Instead, his circle of friends centered on Albert Sidney Johnston of Kentucky, who had also attended Transylvania. Another of Davis's West Point friends was Leonidas Polk of North Carolina. Davis's unwavering loyalty to the friends he made at West Point would be a trait that, while admirable, would bear sometimes bitter consequences for the Confederacy later on. After West Point, Jefferson Davis was commissioned as a lieutenant of infantry and served in backcountry forts in the Wisconsin Territory. Apparently, Davis found army life on a frontier outpost less than satisfying at times, since at least once, older brother Joseph had to talk him out of resigning his commission and pursuing a career as a civil engineer with a railroad company. Jefferson Davis was forced to admit, quote, I cannot say that I like the army, but I know of nothing else I could do which I would like better, end quote. Davis's health also suffered in the army. One winter later on, while he was serving with a regiment of dragoons, he caught a severe case of pneumonia from which he almost died. After that, for the rest of his life, he would be highly susceptible to bouts of bronchitis, which in turn triggered attacks of acute neuralgia that laid him up for weeks at a time. 
And since I had to look it up for myself, I'll share with you guys that neuralgia is an intense burning or stabbing pain caused by irritation or damage to a nerve. The location of the pain depends on the underlying condition that's irritating the nerve at question. And in Jefferson Davis's case, it caused intense facial pain and searing migraine headaches, which at times were disabling. Jefferson Davis spent seven years in the U.S. Army, enduring hardship, danger, and boredom while serving on the frontier. He gained a reputation as a competent, efficient officer, but one who was a bit feisty and strong-willed. During this time, one of the officers Davis served with and became quite close friends with was a lieutenant from Kentucky named Robert Anderson. If that name rings a bell, it's because in April 1861, Major Anderson will be in command of the federal garrison at Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor when Jefferson Davis orders Confederate forces to bombard the fort and force its surrender. The popular story is that when Jefferson Davis resigned from the Army in 1835, it was so he could marry Sarah Knox Taylor, the daughter of Zachary Taylor, who was Davis's commanding officer in Wisconsin. The story goes that Taylor disapproved of the match, and so Davis resigned in order to wed his true love. Well, there is some truth in that story. Davis had met and fallen in love with Knox, or Noxie as she was called, while he was serving with the 1st Infantry after Zachary Taylor moved to Wisconsin to take command of the regiment. And Taylor and Davis did have a falling out over a misunderstanding, really, and so Taylor who didn't want his daughter to marry an army officer, any army officer anyway, did disapprove of the match. But the truth is, Jefferson Davis did not resign from the army for solely romantic reasons. He sent in his resignation in April 1835 after a court-martial had been called to look into the accusation he had engaged in, quote, highly disrespectful, insubordinate, and contemptuous conduct, end quote, toward a superior officer named Mason. In his book, Jefferson Davis, The Man and His Hour, William C. Davis explains that the court, quote, found him guilty of all the actions that Mason charged. However, they attached no criminality to these actions, as indeed there was none in the military sense, and therefore found him not guilty of the actual charge of conduct subversive of good order and military discipline. The court therefore acquitted him. Though he never commented upon it, Davis cannot have been entirely pleased with the verdict, for it was equivocal at best. His acquittal on the greater charge removed any stigma of criminality, yet the verdict on the specification made it very clear that the members of the court did not agree with Lieutenant Davis that his conduct had been beyond reproach. Surely that stung his tender pride, as it never had been hurt before. Indeed, it may have stung so much that it prompted the sort of response that only hurt pride can elicit. Eleven days after the verdict, he wrote his resignation. End quote. And so, after being processed by the War Department in Washington, the resignation of Lieutenant Jefferson Davis took effect as of June 30, 1835. By that time, he was a married man. Sometime during that spring, Jefferson and Sarah Knox Taylor set the time and location of their marriage. The ceremony eventually took place outside Louisville, Kentucky, at the home of Zachary Taylor's widowed sister. 
At first, the couple planned a fall wedding, but they moved the date up to June. It wasn't an elopement, exactly. Sarah left for Kentucky with her parents' consent, although Colonel Taylor still refused to give his blessing to the proposed match. Neither of the bride's parents attended the ceremony, but nevertheless, on June 17, 1835, Jefferson Davis and Sarah Knox Taylor became husband and wife. The happy newlyweds traveled south on a steamboat and spent a short time at Davis Bend before continuing on in mid-August to stay with Jefferson's sister Anna in Louisiana. Very soon after their arrival, however, Davis fell ill with fever. The next day, his bride was struck down. While it may have been yellow fever, both most likely suffered from malaria, which was transmitted by the millions of mosquitoes that swarmed the swampy area of the lower Mississippi, Mississippi River Valley. Placed in separate rooms, the couple both became desperately ill. Sarah died on September 15, 1835. She was 21 years old and had been Mrs. Jefferson Davis for just three months. Now with the weight of heartbreaking grief added to his illness, Davis himself wavered between life and death for another month, but he slowly improved, and by mid-October he recovered enough strength to travel home to Mississippi. Davis stayed with his brother Joseph while he continued to mend, and then, at Joseph's suggestion, Davis traveled to Cuba for a stay that was intended to soothe mind and body. But the loss of his wife in such a tragic fashion had obviously been a massive emotional blow to Davis, and her cherished memory stayed with him the remaining 54 years of his life. William Cooper, in his book Jefferson Davis American, writes that, quote, Just months before his death, he received an offer for the return of a letter from Knox. His reaction underscored the power of the emotion he retained even after almost five and a half decades. You rightly suppose it is much value to me, he responded. He went on to inform his potential benefactor that he had kept at his home in Davis Bend all of his and Knox's correspondence in a package in a desk, letters he never saw again after February 1861. The old man concluded, It would be a great solace if I could recover the letter Miss Taylor wrote to me. End quote. In his autobiography, written in the last year of his life, Jefferson Davis spoke of living in great seclusion for many years after his first wife's death. And, no doubt, in an attempt to conquer his grief, Davis, after his return from Cuba, set out to conquer a parcel of land in Davis Bend that Joseph turned over to him. In honor of the great number of thorny weeds that grew there, Davis named the place Briarfield and spent most of the next several years there in seclusion, toiling alongside his slaves to turn a wilderness into a plantation. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, 
shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Jefferson Davis spent most of the next several years at Davis Bend in relative seclusion. During this time, he grew even closer to Joseph. Jefferson's older brother, Joseph, owned over 10,000 acres of rich bottomland there along the Mississippi River, and he owned numerous slaves to work his huge estate, which he had named Hurricane. By the standard of the 1830s, Joseph Davis's management of his slaves could be deemed progressive. He believed that treating his slaves with humanity and benevolence would cause them to respond with loyalty and productivity. Like his older brother, Jefferson Davis also became a major slave owner. As he built up his own plantation, he adopted his brother's outlook and applied it to the management of his own slave force, even taking the unusual step of utilizing a slave named James Pemberton as his overseer, rather than hiring a white man for the important position. During the Civil War, by the time advancing Union Union forces in Mississippi approached Davis Bend in 1862, the brothers' two plantations there, Hurricane and Briarfield, were home to nearly 500 slaves. And, as progressive and liberal as the Davises' treatment of their many slaves might have been, the fact remains that their slaves were still slaves, were still human property. In the preface to his book, Jefferson Davis, American, William Cooper addresses this matter, and we think here at this point in our discussion it's worth quoting Cooper's take on this issue. Cooper says, quote, Race and the place of African Americans in American society were central in Davis's life. His stance on an issue that still vexes the nation more than a century after his death would win no kudos in our time. For his entire life, he believed in the superiority of the white race. He also owned slaves, defended slavery as a moral and as a social good, and fought a great war to maintain it. After 1865, he opposed new rights for blacks. He rejoiced at the collapse of Reconstruction and the reassertion of white authority with its accompanying black subordination. No reader of this book can condone any of these attitudes. But my goal is to understand Jefferson Davis as a man of his time, not condemn him for not being a man of my time. In his age, his views were not at all unusual, much less radical. In Davis's lifetime, almost every white American and Western European believed that whites were superior to blacks. In addition, millions of Americans, Northerners as well as Southerners, accepted slavery as a constitutionally sanctioned and legal institution. I will not keep pointing out that his outlook is very different from mine and from that of our own era. I should not need to. End quote. 
Cooper does go on to point out that while Jefferson Davis would eloquently defend his commitment to liberty and the Confederacy's commitment to liberty, he, like other white Southerners, defined their liberty to a substantial degree as the right to own slaves and their freedom to decide the fate of slavery without outside interference. Even as he worked at building at Briarfield into a profitable plantation, Jefferson Davis would soon enter a world, the world of politics, where he would eventually play a major role in shaping the course of the national debate over the South's right to decide the fate of slavery without outside interference. It was in 1842 that Davis entered the world of politics, running unsuccessfully for the state legislature. Two years later, he was a presidential elector on the Democratic ticket, and he traveled the state giving speeches on behalf of James K. Polk and supporting the annexation of Texas. The next year, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. During his campaign for that seat in Congress, he married his second wife, Verena Howell, a member of a wealthy family from Natchez, Mississippi. At a Christmas party in 1843, Joseph Davis had engineered the meeting of his youngest brother and the daughter of a friend, William Burr Howell. Born in 1826, Verena Howell was 17 years younger than Jefferson Davis. The striking young woman had attended an elite girls' school in Philadelphia, as well as studying at home with a private tutor. So she was well-read, clever, articulate, and opinionated. It's not surprising that Davis, the lonely widower, found himself drawn to Verena Howell's youth, beauty, and intelligence, and realized that he was ready to wed again. But the coming together of two such strong personalities was, at times, the source of conflict and tension. Nevertheless, after a stormy courtship, Jefferson and Verena were married in Natchez on February 26, 1845. In an essay examining the roles of the wives and marriages of five prominent Confederate leaders, Leslie Gordon says, quote, Verena Howell Davis proved a perceptive and shrewd judge of her husband from the first day she met him. She summed up his character, clear, clearly seeing the complex man who would perplex historians. Only 16 at the time, Verena aptly described Jefferson's uncertain temper and his tendency to take for granted that everybody agrees with him when he expresses an opinion. She observed his aloof and sensitive nature, but also saw hints of charm and kindness. Verena discovered the very weaknesses that soured so many of Jefferson's political and military relationships. Jefferson and Verena were markedly different individuals whose personalities both clashed and complemented each other. The same traits that made Verena Jefferson's greatest defender also strained their marriage. Her sharp wit and strong will clashed with Jefferson's traditional concepts of appropriate female behavior. The marriage was long-lasting, but certainly not free of tension. A forthright, bright woman paired with a sensitive, stubborn man inevitably caused friction. End quote. During the 15 years before the Civil War, Verena Davis easily slipped into the role of a politician's wife. Unlike most women of her day, she was interested in and had a broad knowledge of politics and public affairs. She befriended Presidents Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan and charmed John C. Calhoun. Throughout all the years of his public service, both in Washington and later in Richmond, especially when he was plagued by poor health or immense stress, Jefferson Davis relied enormously on his wife's social graces, religious faith, and unswerving devotion. 
And so when Jefferson Davis arrived in Washington, D.C. in 1845, he not only had a new career, but a new bride. But his freshman term in Congress proved to be a short one, lasting only about seven months. That's because with the Mexican War heating up, Davis signaled his willingness to lead a volunteer unit, and in June 1846, he was elected colonel of the 1st Mississippi Regiment, usually called the Mississippi Rifles because of the new Whitney percussion cap rifles that Davis specially secured for his men. In July 1846, Davis joined his regiment at New Orleans and shortly thereafter resigned his seat in Congress. In northern Mexico, as part of General Zachary Taylor's army, Davis and his Mississippians got their first chance to, dis to distinguish themselves at the Battle of Monterey in September 1846. And both Davis and his men did distinguish themselves in the fierce combat for the Mexican city, including in some desperate house-to-house -house fighting. Then, when the enemy commander sent an offer to abandon the city, Colonel Davis was one of three commissioners that Zachary Taylor sent to negotiate with the Mexicans. While securing the signed surrender document from the enemy commander, Davis had a bit of an adventure with an old friend, Albert Sidney Johnston, when the two American officers found themselves in a tight spot amidst hostile Mexicans. In the end, all turned out well, but the incident made a lasting impression on Davis since he credited Johnston's quick thinking as having saved them both from likely death. And by the way, Zachary Taylor and Jefferson Davis had apparently reconciled their past differences a couple of years before this, when they had happened to meet on a steamboat traveling between Vicksburg and Natchez. In fact, when the Mississippians arrived in Mexico, Taylor wrote to Davis saying, quote, I can assure you I am more than anxious to take you by the hand and to have you and your command with or near me, end quote. But anyway, after Monterey, Jefferson Davis went home to Mississippi on a brief furlough, and when he returned to Mexico, there had been a change in strategy. Taylor had lost many of his best units to Winfield Scott, who, after landing at Veracruz, was to make the main American effort with a bold thrust at Mexico City, while Taylor's reduced force in the north was to remain on the defensive. Mexico's president-slash-general, Antonio Lopez de Santa Anna, decided to upset the American plans by seizing the initiative with the strike against Taylor's weakened force. After destroying Taylor's army, Santa Anna planned to turn his victorious men southward and crush Scott's invasion force. When the Mexicans under, San under Santa Anna assaulted Taylor's weakened army at the Battle of Buena Vista in February 1847, the outnumbered Americans were hard-pressed, and for a while the issue was in doubt. As the battle reached its climax, a regiment of volunteers on the American side gave way before a Mexican cavalry charge. Davis and the Mississippi Rifles were sent into the breach, where Davis deployed them alongside a unit from Indiana in an unorthodox V-shaped formation that wouldn't have been found in any manual of tactics. But it worked, and the Mississippians and Hoosiers stopped the Mexican breakthrough. While his men had repelled the Mexican attack, Davis had received a painful wound in the foot, but he'd stayed in the saddle, directing the fighting. At Buena Vista, the rifles suffered 39 killed and 56 wounded, the heaviest casualties of any American unit engaged, and grim evidence that they had taken part in some of the battle's heaviest fighting. 
The wound he received at Buena Vista would be a long time healing, and Davis had to get around on crutches for months after his return from Mexico. In fact, the injury caused him pain for the rest of his life. But when the rifles returned to Mississippi in the late spring of 1847, their colonel was an instant hero, and the fact that he was a wounded hero only added to his fame. Jefferson Davis doubtless volunteered to lead a regiment from his home state to Mexico for a mixture of reasons. Without question, he saw duty calling. He probably also wanted to put his military education and training to the ultimate test on the battlefield. But he certainly also knew that military glory would advance his political career by leaps and bounds. He was certainly aware that in a society raised on patriotic stories that revolved around the heroes of the American Revolution, that in such a society, leading men in combat carried prestige and commanded respect. And so it was really no surprise that one of the honors accorded to the 39-year-old Jefferson Davis after his return from Mexico was his appointment by Mississippi's governor to fill a seat in the United States Senate, a seat left vacant by the sudden death of Senator Jesse Spite. So back in 1845, Jefferson Davis had gone to Washington as an unknown freshman congressman, but now two years later, in the fall of 1847, he was was returning to the city as a senator and one with a national reputation as a popular war hero. And, sorry, but that's where we'll begin to wrap up this episode. We originally thought we'd do Jefferson Davis in one show, but we quickly realized we just wouldn't have been able to cover everything we wanted to in that way. So we decided to split up our coverage of his life story and make it a two-parter. So that means... That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is an outstanding biography of our subject. It's titled Jefferson Davis, American, and it's by William J. Cooper, Jr. Michael Holt, author of The Rise and Fall of the American Whig Party, says, Bill Cooper's marvelous book is unquestionably the finest biography of Jefferson Davis ever published. Superbly researched, elegantly written, exquisitely balancing the public and private dimensions of Davis's life, it provides an incisive and compelling analysis of his role as Confederate president, largely because it presents a brilliantly coherent interpretation of his entire career. So that's Jefferson Davis, American, by William Cooper. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations, as well as other cool stuff, at the podcast website, which is civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. Before we sign off, we wanted to thank everyone who liked the podcast on Facebook this past week. And then on iTunes, there are still some great five-star reviews coming in. And I wanted to give a special shout-out to someone with regard to that. Um, I'd, I'd had a crummy day at work one day toward the end of last week, and I came home and was taking care of some podcast stuff, and I checked iTunes and laughed out loud, and my day brightened up considerably when I read a five-star review by someone whose iTunes screen name is Free Milk from the Cow, which is very interesting. Um, but he or she said the podcast is, quote, as warm and engaging as James K. Polk's heart was dark and expansionistic. Keep up the good work. End quote. So, whoever you are, thank you. That made my day. Poor James K. Polk. 
All right. Thanks, you guys, for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time when we pick up where we've left off with Jefferson Davis's life story. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.